You're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode... Kathy, Professor Ackner, thank you for inviting us into your home. I feel in my body that anytime someone tells me a story, I am rooting for them. I'm seeing a lot of oat milk. I'm seeing a lot of almond milk. I'm seeing a lot of hazelnut milk. Do you act dumber than you are? Wow. It's kind of brutal, I think. The thing I'm most interested in is what inspired us to love you. Um, I'm wondering if it's a chicken or egg scenario. That is a great point. Um, although maybe we don't feel heard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you feel heard? I, I don't know if I've met anyone who feels truly understood. Not hanging up my ambition at any cost is a defining feature of mine. So Taffy brodesser Ackner is a journalist. She's a celebrity profiler, and now she's a novelist. Yeah, she's done some of the most popular celebrity profiles on the internet, from Mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow on building a multi-billion dollar business with Goop. Also Bradley Cooper, Kris Jenner. Yeah, she's done, you know, Jonathan Franzen, the writer, Tom Ford, the designer, Tanya Harding, the figure skater. And I think she's kind of changed the game when it comes to celebrity profiling. So we thought it'd be interesting to hear more about specifically what she's doing that's different. About a month ago, Taffy published her first novel, which has generated a lot of buzz. It's called Fleischman is in Trouble. And I'm about halfway through this book right now. So, Lila, without giving any spoilers, please, (laughs) can you say something about what it's about? Yes, it's very easy to spoil this book. So I'm going to be very careful about how much I say. So the book is narrated by someone who looks quite a lot like Taffy on paper. She's a woman named Libby. She's also a 40-something-year-old woman living in suburban New Jersey. She's the mother of two. She was a profile writer for a men's magazine. But unlike Taffy, crucially, she quit her career to become a full-time mom. And she's telling the story of her childhood friend, Toby Fleischman, who separates from his wife, Rachel, and is grappling with the freedom of online dating in middle age. So he's on all the online dating apps, and he's sort of flipping through all these photos, and uh, it's kind of gross. Uh, And and one day, uh, Rachel drops the kids off at his house, and she disappears. And I wouldn't say chaos ensues, but uh, things ensue. So the book is, I would say, in summary, uh, about people who really aren't thrilled about aging. It is funny, because when I picked this book up, I thought, midlife crisis, New York, rich people, you know, do we really need another novel about all of this stuff? Um, But it's not at all what I thought. It's really kind of brilliantly playing with all that stuff, I think. Yeah, definitely. It flips a lot of those tropes on their head. But before we get into this conversation with Taffy, welcome to our new podcast. Yeah, if you're already a listener, welcome back. This new show is going to be everything that was great about everything else, our old podcast, but with an added emphasis on conversations with people who we think are breaking new ground in interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And if you're a new listener, welcome to Culture Call. Grizz and I will be talking through how the social changes we're seeing right now are playing out in books, in art, in music, on screen, online. And we'll also be showing you behind the scenes of the life and arts journalism that the Financial Times produces all the time, which is incredible, uh, and life and arts journalism we're seeing elsewhere. And we really consider this to be a conversation with 
you too. So we want to know what's on our listeners' minds. Specifically, what kind of trends have been intriguing you recently? Yeah, or bothering you recently, honestly. One example (laughs) that's been in my mind is that everyone is now lactose intolerant. And I'm wondering if that's grown proportionally with the rise of alternate milks. So, you know, it could be anything. I'm seeing a lot of oat milk. I'm seeing a lot of almond milk. I'm seeing a lot of hazelnut milk. And um, I'm wondering if it's a chicken or egg scenario. (laughs) So if anyone has thoughts on that uh, or any other weird cultural trends, please get in touch. Yes, we are here for weird cultural trends, specifically milk related. That's fine. (laughs) So you can email us at culturecall@ft.com. Uh, we also have a brand new Twitter account, which is FT Culture Call. Uh, so, yeah, come hang out. So, Lila, it's been a few weeks now since the final episode of Everything Else. Um, what have you been up to? I have been on vacation and it's been excellent. Uh, I spent the last week in California and uh, mm. when I went to L.A., I was totally overwhelmed by how many Armenians are in Los Angeles and how good that food is. So there's some context to this, right? Yes, I am half Armenian. My mother's Armenian. And uh, through my life, when I've told people that, they kind of get a distant look in their eye and they're like, Armenian, what is that? Uh, Where is that country? Like, what do you guys speak? Um, (laughs) But when I got to LA, I realized that uh, it's basically Armenian Mecca. Like there's Armenian restaurants everywhere. There's a neighborhood called Little Armenia. And so I just spent a lot of time eating uh, excellent Armenian food. Wow, that sounds great. So what kind of thing? So Armenians are a very large diaspora. So their food has been affected by many different cultures like around Asia Minor. It's like this mix of Middle Eastern food and Greek food. It's so good. So it's like shish kebab, uh, stuffed cabbage domas, which are like these cabbage or peppers that are stuffed with meat and rice, eggplant dips, things like that. And then bostrma, which is (laughs) I can't believe I'm speaking about on a podcast because I've been eating it my whole life and I find it hilarious. It's just a cured beef that smells like pungent, like aggressively (laughs) pungent. Um, And my grandmother used to say that it would make your sweat smell for weeks. She would be like, be careful with that Bostermah. It's going to make your sweat smell. And uh, I realized that all the Armenians in L.A. also know that Bostermah is the thing that makes your sweat smell. So I highly recommend it. It was delicious. Um, Go to L.A., eat Armenian food. So what have you been up to, Grizz? Nothing as adventurous as your trip, Lila, sadly. I (laughs) read about eight collections, actually, of essays by female writers for a piece for FT Weekend for the Life and Arts section. The reason that I was manically reading so many collections of personal essays by women is that (laughs) I was basically keeping track of what was being published and I was noticing that lots of the books landing on my desk were these personal essay collections and a lot of them by women and I was thinking this is interesting and I wonder if there's something happening here with the idea of kind of personal testimony and I was thinking Me Too was basically about exactly that about the idea of personal stories it's about the me and my story and that idea of the personal and the personal being political in this moment has kind of really been revived. Mm, I loved that piece. At one point you said in it, what all these writers explore are the messy contradictions of living and writing as a woman. I'm curious about that. It's interesting because I think, you know, these are not all really similar writers. There's kind of 
older writers like Rebecca Solnit, uh, the American feminist writer. There's Gia Tolentino, who's 30 years old and a New Yorker staff writer. There's an Irish writer called Sinead Gleeson, who was a discovery for me and who I really loved. So there's kind of like a very diverse group, but it seemed like they were all really interested in ideas of kind of sex and consent and power and so, yes, I was really interested in how they kind of grappled with all of those themes and how they grapple also with the sort of tradition of women writers. So kind of looking back to Virginia Woolf and people like that. And I guess one of the things that I sort of realised when I was reading was that writers 100 years ago who happened to be women were quite confined with what they could write about you know it was kind of right. motherhood children love domestic intrigue and so for a woman nowadays to choose to write about that stuff and to say actually the domestic is political or mm -hmm. the body is political mm. I loved that point that me too has sort of opened the door for this so the piece was excellent everybody should read it if you want to read it ft.com um, we'll also put it up on our twitter feed and one of the writers, Gia Tolentino, who was featured in the piece, she wrote a collection called Trick Mirror. She's going to be on the podcast, right? Yeah, I'm very excited about that. But on today's episode, Lila, you went to meet the writer Taffy Brodessa Ackner. How was that? It was fascinating. I went to New Jersey with one of our audio producers to meet Taffy at her home. New Jersey, for those who are not New Yorkers, is just across the Hudson River, so it's really not that far. But it feels like a lifetime away. Something about <laughs> crossing the Manhattan-New Jersey border feels like this like portal into suburbia um, <laughs> that removes you from your normal life and puts you into a life that's like very hard to understand. <laughs> anyway, we got to her house. It was on a very residential street. It was super green. Um, the homes were lovely. It was beautiful. Taffy opened the door and sort of a like, huge fluffy doodle kind of just jumped on us and uh, welcomed us uh, immediately. <laughs> um, it was a very fun, happy, active home. Come on in here. I'm so sorry. Come on in here. Okay. He's fine. He doesn't do it. He's a puppy. That's fine with me. Are you trying to figure it all out? Close the door as quickly as possible. Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting us into your home. Thank you for coming all the way to my home and for having me on your podcast. And no problem. It felt like a long distance to come to New Jersey, but it wasn't. I, it's an emotionally long distance. I remember when I was living in New York and someone would move to New Jersey and in my mind, I would just say, you know, goodbye. It's <laughs> right. over. It's, it's over. over for us. I will say that we are in your home, yes. uh, your living room, dining room table. Your husband is in the kitchen. Your children just came back from camp and may come in. Yes. So this is a... Yeah, I got the dog. And the dog. <laughs> Don't forget the dog, the puppy. Right. Yeah. And an adorable yeah. puppy. Um, so, yeah. That's all part of right. the narrative. I yeah. guess. <laughs> I'm not even pretending it's not chaos <laughs> is, I think, the headline there. Yeah. So you've written this fascinating, very deliberate book about how men and women communicate and the ways you lose and find yourself after you have children and all sorts of things uh, called Fleischman is in Trouble. Yeah, thank you. But before we get into that, I'd love to talk a little bit about what most people know you for which is your work as a feature writer. Right. And I've been thinking about your different celebrity profiles mm -hmm. to begin with, and every one of them has a thing that stands out. And when I tell my friends about them, there's always the thing, right? There's like, 
you wrote about Gwyneth Paltrow and she was frustratingly perfect and Bradley Cooper wouldn't tell you anything and Sam Smith kept crying. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> I love that guy. So really. sweet. <laughs> and Nicki Minaj fell asleep four separate times. She sure did. <laughs> during she your kept falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the other one that I keep thinking about is Tom Hiddleston who like made you the most amazing bolognese and in the midst of it he was telling you about his breakup with Taylor Swift. Yeah, and it's very masterful. Like I made that bolognese after. You did? How <laughs> yeah, is I it? Made it? You know, like it was good, but I'm sure if Tom Hiddleston is making it for you in his kitchen, it's, it's like exceptional. I, it is exceptional, and also, you know, when you're growing up and someone says, "I put love in it," right. he put. I cannot imagine that he made that bolognese without putting every bit of enthusiasm. And Tom Hiddleston-ness he had into it. And that's why it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to start by asking how you developed the skill for profile writing over time. I started out writing personal essays. And I always felt that there had to be a story in the essay, not just the feelings. There had to be a narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end and a character arc in them, which are things that I actually learned about in film school when I was learning how to write screenplays. And you always have to worry that you're going to lose a reader. Because I feel like most people are reading on a phone or on their computers, and it is so easy to change over to something else in a way that makes my blood run cold. And there is no greater risk of losing a reader or any listener than when you just start talking about yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why we pay people to listen to us in therapy, in other ways. I mean, therapy has other advantages. Um, if my therapist is listening, I just want her to know <laughs> I, I feel that she's not just a paid listener. But stories have a beginning and a middle and an end. And there is this great risk when you're writing a profile that you will not execute the beginning, middle, and end because the person is so fascinating to you that you might get caught in a trap where all you do is talk about them as opposed to showing their arc. Right. As I mentioned when we were setting up the interview, I wrote you blind yeah. <laughs> last fall because I was asked to write a profile. Mm -hmm. um, I remember it. It was about this 92-year-old painter named Alex Katz, and I just didn't know that much about 20th century painting. Right. So I asked you how to interview someone when you're not an expert in their expertise and right. how to not look like someone sent the intern, you know? Right. And you said, if you're worried about what your subject thinks, you're doing it wrong. Research, study, learn everything about him and what he does, and then ask whatever questions you want. Right. I have no attachment to looking smart to yeah. anybody. Like I, that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, my name is Taffy. You know, like I came through the world born for low expectations, which is, which has worked out for me. It's fine. I always know everything going in, but I've also heard, I heard from somebody I wrote about last year afterward, he called me and said, do you act dumber than you are? Wow. And I said, no, I said, this is exactly how dumb I am. <laughs> and he said, because your story about me was so smart, but I don't think they really mean the word dumb. I think that they're taking the thing that journalists are supposed to be in movies, right? right. Which is like conniving and too smart. Mm. 
And I think that too many people who go into an interview, this is what I infer based on how often this comes up and how often people say to me, you don't seem like a journalist. I get that so often, which used to make me sad. I want to seem like a journalist, but I haven't been able to seem like a journalist. And so I guess the answer is, is that people are afraid of looking dumb in front of their subjects. I'm only afraid of looking dumb in front of the reader. You know, when you take any kind of artistic risk, you end up looking dumb half the time. But it, it could also be gendered that like people think that I'm not very smart. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I can't think about myself too much before I dissolve right. in a pit of self-consciousness. And I don't want to. All I know is that you have to serve your reader. You have to represent the reader. And I don't know how to do that other than by asking what I'm curious about, which sometimes doesn't sound like a very smart question, but I don't also know what to do with a smart question. Well, what are you, what is your opinion on the election? I don't care what anybody (laughs) thinks about the election. I care what they think about the thing that they do and who they are and how they got that way. And if it comes up, if it's burning in them and they want to talk about politics, I mean, you brought up Tom Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston, was totally devastated by the election. It was all he wanted to talk about for the entire first day. You know, he kept talking about fake news, how upset he was about (laughs) fake news. And at every point he brought it up until I understood what he was doing, which was, and I don't even know if it was conscious, but I believe it was that he hadn't just spent the autumn reading all about the advent of fake news, but he had spent the summer being the subject of it. He had spent the summer watching as people totally misinterpreted him and grew opinions about him based on information he didn't give them and that he didn't believe was true. Yeah. That was really interesting to me. And suddenly realizing that the fake news he's talking about might actually be closer to home than just, you know, parliament or the U S government. That was revelatory. If you just, listen to people a lot. They will tell you that thing that you're talking about, that you think there's a thing in every story. It's always given to me. If you listen, maybe the thing that doesn't make me seem like a journalist is that I don't come in with that many questions. I have some Mm -hmm. and I have the urgent ones, but mostly I just want to hear what's going on in their lives and what's going on with them. They're extremely famous. And I really like to hear what people are going through regarding their family. I think that once you become famous, fame is such a trauma. It's such a right. unique trauma that like, I'm here for that discussion in yeah. a big way. I'm very interested in it. I'm very interested in it too. And what have you learned about fame? Like, can you say more about it as a trauma? Because I think a lot about like, The Obamas who have said a few times, like part of the reason that we can sort of stay relatively normal and seem normal to other people is that we became famous later in life when we were like fully developed adults. Right. right. (laughs) People who have been famous their whole lives don't understand the question. Mm -hmm. People who are the children of famous people, they get a different question. The question you give them is more like, do you remember the day that you realized who you were the child of? Do you remember the day... And I'm talking about famous people who are also the children of famous people Mm -hmm. because then they're just living up to something that was given to them as a, right. But I think in terms of fame's traumatic effects, it just becomes the headline on everything. I think it just becomes 
everything about you and it actually leads to your world getting smaller and you becoming more misunderstood because it's your, your narrative has been taken away from you and it is no longer in your best interest to just walk around correcting the record or else you get accused of being someone who cares too much. Right. Whereas who wouldn't care, <laughs> right. Like, right? Like who doesn't care about being misinterpreted, especially if you're an artist and all you wanted was to be understood. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated dynamic because fame is actually this incredible democracy where we, the people truly elect people to become famous. Right. They fulfill something for us that isn't fulfilled with our other celebrities. They all represent something different. We replace them when the other person, you know, goes south. And that to me is the subject of every story. What is the thing that we elected in you? Mm -hmm. What do you represent to us? Because then you could take your story and make it about everybody. Right. So in your book, uh, there's a narrator of it who sort of has a somewhat similar life to you. Yes, yes. She lives in New Jersey. She has two children. She worked at a men's magazine. I'm wondering if you're starting to get questions about your personal life and how you understand it in the context of thinking about fame so much more than other people probably do. Um, the question I get is an assumption. It's not a question. Is this you? like, what is the one to one correlation between you and your first person narrator who seems to resemble you biographically in, in many, many ways, although absent one very crucial way, which is that Libby left a men's magazine and hung up her ambition Mm -hmm. and went to be a stay at home mother and not hanging up my ambition at any cost is a defining feature of mine that like, nope, not letting the fact that we have parent teacher conferences get in the way of this, you know, which to my detriment sometimes, but I, I have not yet stopped the fight against the tide of the other things that want to take me away. Whereas Libby has, and those are our defining differences. But the question you're asking about people asking me, um, at first the questions came, you know, are you the inspiration for this character? And the answer, I mean, obviously I am the only biographical information I even give in my jacket bio are the things that match up with (laughs) with Libby. Like I don't talk about the ways we differ, right? Like I don't do that. And that's me having a little bit of fun. Mm -hmm. And I know from interviewing how many authors get so angry when you ask them, what the inspiration for their characters were or how biographical it is. Yes. People get so angry and I am still mostly a journalist and still on the side of the journalists. (laughs) And anytime I see someone get angry about that, all I can think is like, what do you think we're supposed to ask? Aren't you incredibly lucky that you're getting an interview? You're just a writer. Like you're so lucky. What else are we supposed to ask you? You don't have like a life to be asked like you weren't also in the Senate. Like this is what we're going to ask you. So I'm not ever offended by that question, first of all. But second of all, the thing I'm most interested in is what inspired us to love you. And that's what I spend my entire time trying to figure out when I'm with someone I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. The thing that annoys me the most is when a celebrity or writer or anyone thinks that the public has no right 
to care about those things? Why should you want to know where my inspiration came from? And the answer is the same reason I write celebrity profiles, because when somebody speaks to somebody and you feel it in your soul, you feel less lonely and you want to know everything about that person all at once. It was the tension between when I was writing about Bradley Cooper, he did not think that the public had the right to understand what his inspiration for A Star is Born was. I was incredibly moved by that movie. I couldn't wait to interview him. I just wanted to ask him more and more questions. And I really loved him and wanted to hear more and more about like what it was like to delve into that kind of subject matter and where he got all of it from and why he chose that to be his directorial debut. Like that was such an interesting choice to me. And he would tell me the mechanics of it. Well, it was, you know, Clint Eastwood had the property and then, you know, I felt like it was time for me to direct, but that's not really the answer. And I feel like we should be so happy that people are moved by our work and want to know anything about it. What more could I want? Do you feel like you're getting famous? God, I don't know. You know what? I was recognized on an airplane a few days ago and I nearly lost it. (laughs) But then I found out we have friends in common. So I was like, is that really being recognized? (laughs) And sometimes I'm at the supermarket and someone will stop me and say, oh, did you write that Gwyneth Paltrow story? And I'll say yes and listen to whatever they want to tell me about it, which is wonderful. Like what writer doesn't want that? And my children, if they're with me, they will say that I'm very famous, but they also (laughs) think that I'm famous because my name appears in the paper. They don't understand that it'd be that it appears in like the smallest font <laughs> that we have, you know? So you're doing all of this. Mm-hmm. You're writing these profiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the side, you're writing a novel. Yes. Fleischman is in trouble. It's a book about divorce. Mm-hmm. It's also a book about marriage. Yes, you know? it's a book it's about, about marriage. marriage and dating. Yeah, it's about how men and women like misunderstand each other. It's a lot about that. You know, it's funny. Every time I speak with someone I let them tell me what the book is about. And a lot of people say it's about divorce. And I say, yes, it's about divorce. A writer I admire, Joe Nocera, on Twitter. It's actually a book about marriage. And I thought, oh my God, it is a book about marriage. And then someone else said, actually, it's a book about middle-aged malaise. <laughs> and I said, yes, of course it's a book about middle-aged malaise. Yeah, so I'll take our, anyone's word for it. One of our readers called it a book about midlife crisis in the modern age. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> um, can you tell me a bit just about how the book came to be? Like, what did you want to write about? What I wanted to do was write a magazine story about the generation of people getting divorced now who are going on apps for the first time ever and who are dating in a completely different way than they dated when they got married. People my age, I'm 43. Mm-hmm. And I called up my editor at GQ and he said, you know, Taffy, you don't really always show your hand at being out of touch. But in this case, you know, people have been doing this for a lot of years. And also the GQ reader might not really understand what you're talking about. Like he's been on apps for the long haul and you would be doing like a historical piece at this point. And I thought that's fair. And he said, but I hope to read it somewhere else. And I remember walking down the street and I almost called my times editor. That's how my contracts worked. I had to first 
give the idea to GQ, then to the New York Times. That was the order. Right. And I was going to ask if I could do this story. And I know what it would look like. It might, it was probably going to be like a, like a year in the life of someone who just got divorced. Maybe it would be about modern divorce. It would, you know, I have a great editor there. It, it would have been good thanks to him eventually, but something about it. I just felt this fire in me and I started writing it and I wrote the first 10 pages in a minute. I was so on fire for it. So that's how it came to be. Like anything else that is not part of your deadline, it was something that I loved doing and that I kept a document open on my computer for the entire time I was writing it. And it was almost like making an investment in my future. Like here's a paragraph to the novel. Here's a page to the novel. Here's a sentence to the novel. That felt it, it felt like it, I was accomplishing something. It felt like I had a place to put my audacity. It felt audacious. One thing that I kept noticing as I was reading is that nobody in this book feels like they're being listened to. Yeah. And also no one is listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the journalism. That's the, yeah, that's, the, <laughs> that's the journalism. And um, over the course of the book, you experience different perspectives on a marriage and uh, you have like some incredible literary techniques that have you leaving the book feeling like everyone in this book is complicated. Oh, thank you. Both good and bad. Yeah. Even when people seem bad, there are, there's goodness to them. Right. And everyone feels like they haven't been heard. And also nobody's listening. And also maybe we haven't been listening. Right. And uh, maybe we don't feel heard. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all in this sort of I mean, do you feel heard? Soup. I, I don't know if I've met anyone who feels truly understood. Right. I always felt like maybe one day when I was allowed to write thousands and thousands of words and just have people listen to them <laughs> and read them that I would feel understood or listened to. But I think my productivity comes from the fact that I haven't hit that yet. Like maybe writers slow down at the point where they start to feel it. I still have so many ways I, I don't feel heard. Right? right? Don't right. you? Don't yes. You? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing. Yeah. Yeah. What kinds of ways do you not feel heard? I don't know. Like I feel, I feel like, I don't even know how to put it into words. It might just be a habit from childhood. My mother always felt like you shouldn't need to talk about things so much. She was very against the concept of therapy or talking things out. Like she really just thought we had a, like we were very lucky and we had a good life. You know, she was born at the tail end of the Holocaust. Like that's, that's a valid point of view, but I was born in America in a culture of plenty and I had things on my mind my whole life. And I think when I finally began writing is when I felt people start to listen. And then maybe that's kind of the wound of your childhood and you keep pressing at it and you keep trying to fulfill the ways that childhood broke you a little bit, but I don't, I think those are, those are permanent. I think your, your, your adulthood is whatever you're doomed from your childhood to practice things out in your adulthood. A very strange thing we do in this culture is talk about childhood as if the more noble thing to do is to disregard it. 
as if we were different people when we were children, as opposed to what's actually the truth, which is that somebody once defined childhood as this set of years and it's a superficial demarcation. We decided on it. We decided here's where you are no longer allowed to bring up the things that hurt you from then, the ways you're always trying to make yourself feel better. That's what we're all trying to do, right? Yeah. I found in your book that it was so much easier to understand and empathize with the characters when you learn where they came from right? and when you learn what their childhoods were like. To me, the entire book is an experiment in empathy. I always thought, I always wondered what it would be like to write a profile from two points of view, one in which you like the person and one in which you don't. And you would find that you had two completely different profiles. It is incredibly effective to tell a story from somebody else's point of view. The minute you're in their point of view, you are designed. Everything in your body and brain is designed for empathy. I feel in my body that anytime someone tells me a story, I am rooting for them, yeah. which is maybe a dangerous thing too, but luckily I have editors. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, main character, so the narrator, Libby, the first person narrator, mm-hmm. who says at one point, that empathy is a weakness, mm-hmm. sort of, and that she feels like she isn't able to write sort of the hard-hitting pieces yeah. that she could if she wasn't so empathic. Do you feel that way? or No, I feel that she is a very heightened version of the things about me that serve the story. And there are thoughts I have that, like, would I be able to listen literally anybody's side of the story. Like if I did the Nazi profile, if I did the, you know, whoever the villains are profile, you know, I, I wonder. And sometimes it's a really interesting part of a story to interrogate those things on the page because a big part of my job is to say, Hey, this is how I felt when I was there. Why did I feel that way? Was it okay that I felt that way? And I'm comfortable writing those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as someone who has been taught that marriage can be a very romantic thing, yeah, I left this book feeling like marriage does not look appealing. <laughs> uh, and maybe I, maybe I've been duped into thinking it, it is, um, at one point, uh, Libby says, marriage always reminds me of that old saying about democracy, that it's the worst form of government other than all the other forms of government. Yep. <laughs> not, not, don't include that in your next wedding toast. Seriously. It'll bum everyone out. Um, and I guess I'm curious, like how you wanted us to leave this book feeling. Are you cool with that being some of the, one of the ways that people leave the book feeling or are there other ways that, is that what you want to represent and does that matter? This is how I feel. I feel like we're in an unprecedented time where our mothers did not have the kinds of freedom that we have. We have the freedom to love who we want. We have the freedom to work, vote, own property. Um, We have reproductive freedom um, for now. Um, We can use birth control. We do not even need a romantic partner who is a male to have a baby. So we are the first generation of women who know what we're giving up when we agree to marriage, meaning we have all this independence and it's this bundle and we push it across the table and we say, here, you take this. I'm done with it 
because we're sacrificing a lot to get married. But here's the thing, Lila, we still do it. Isn't that the most romantic thing in the world? Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know? Which is that it's horrible and complicated and I choose it every single day. I could get like, I, I mean, in my family, we have a divorce lawyer on auto in our favorites, <laughs> right? That's how much divorce is in my family. My husband is not from a family with a lot of divorce and it's not even kind of in his vernacular. Whereas from the minute we got married, at our first fight, I would say, well, I guess, I guess this is just over. And that was very shocking to him. And I had to learn that actually, maybe this isn't negotiable. Maybe this, is, this was our decision. We continue to make it every day. And despite all the things you read in this book, at the end of it, she goes home to her husband. Is that not the most beautiful thing in the world? In fact, marriage is, is probably a shorthand that she is using for, for middle age, mm. which is, it was like, is there a better, is the, like, what is the alternative to middle age? Dying young. That is the alternative. Right. So we have to figure out how to do it. I also don't know if romance is part of my modern vocabulary. When I was your age, it was extremely important to me. And now it does not occur to me. Like even when I, even in the, in the television shows I watch, I am not looking to be swept away um, by romance, by sexual passion, by any of it. I'm looking for something uh, more devastating than that. I'm looking for, I'm looking to see betrayal. I'm looking to see uh, friendship. Like this, look at the shows we like now. Complicated female friendships. Yeah. And, and We're motherhood. We're that recently. And figuring out who you are in the world if you're a mother. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm looking for. I've already had romance mm -hmm. and it's wonderful. Um, I don't need it anymore. Now I need the other feelings rounded out. So in fact, maybe my book is romantic if you look at it that way. Yeah. Or maybe, I, you know, or maybe it's not. I don't know. It depends what you come away with. Everyone comes away with something different. A lot of people my age read that book and just are so grateful that they don't have to be dating anymore <laughs> that it never occurs to them to question marriage. Like, yeah, yeah you're right about the marriage stuff, but whoo, the dating stuff was like a horror novel. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank, <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure time. talking to you. This was wonderful. Well, Lila, I think Taffy has one of the nicest laughs I've ever heard. She has this amazingly kind of warm presence, I think, but also not a people pleaser. Right. Which I really liked. Um, and I also wondered, is that what makes her a good interviewer, that she is not afraid of looking stupid, like she said? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was what kept coming up over and over again is like, okay, what is it actually that interests you about a person? And just ask. Mm. Like, you're there on behalf of the reader. If you don't know something, then the reader probably doesn't know it either. Yeah, and that's so true. So, Lila, you mentioned in the conversation with Taffy that you'd actually written to her before to ask her advice on doing an interview. And I was just wondering, why was it Taffy out of all the people who you could have emailed? And... How was it to kind of meet her in person after you'd had that email exchange? Yeah, you know, 
I reached out to Taffy because I needed some direction. Um, And I guess I felt unconsciously that she might let me off the hook a little bit. I mean, that must have been it, because really what she did was do that. She said, you know, don't worry about sounding dumb. Like, that's not a problem. Just Mm. learn everything you can before you go in and then ask whatever you want. So that served me really well in the interview. And, you know, it wasn't lost on me that I was then going to interview a professional interviewer um, (laughs) and do it with everybody listening. Uh, So that was just I just went in um, kind of following her advice, which is like, what do I actually want to know from this person? Yeah, that can get kind of deeper to the heart of how she does what she does and why she does what she does. And listening to what Taffy said made me think about how actually what she does and what we're doing with this podcast, you know, i.e. a written interview and a spoken recorded interview, um, it made me think about the ways in which those things are different. You know, in a way, it actually does matter if you sound stupid on tape um, in a podcast interview because you know, unlike in in print, you can't hide. You're you're there. You can be heard. Right. But there is still something valuable in asking the question that may sound dumb, even in that context, because that could be the question that someone listening has and feels relief that they're not the only one who thought that. Like you can kind of give them permission (laughs) to not have to sound smarter than they are. And I also think it sort of disarms the interviewer sometimes to be able to say, wait, what? Or I don't know what that means. Yeah, explain um, the thing that you're not used to having to explain, you know. Exactly. Go back to basics. And actually, in some ways, it can push them to think more critically about something that they might be repeating over and over again to a bunch of interviewers who are saying, oh, yes, of course. Sorry, I shouldn't use a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's true, though, because what you're trying to do is get that person out of their script. Right. And if you can do that by disarming them with a question that's actually quite a simple question, then that's great. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was this idea of the trauma of fame I found so interesting. But actually, the thing I found even more interesting is Taffy's idea, which I don't think I've ever heard before, that we elect our own celebrities and that we choose them to fulfill a certain role and then we replace them. Yeah, and that actually what we're doing when we're electing them to that role is we are... Um, giving them a compliment, which is saying that, like, you make me feel less alone. (laughs) Mm, Yes. And even crazier is that we're giving them this compliment while actually the psychological impact of fame is that it's incredibly isolating and it's making the celebrity feel much more alone. Yes. And also there's always this kind of threat that, like, they won't have celebrity, that they won't have fame. You know, celebrity is a bit like a kind of commodity. Like, everyone has to believe in its value for it to have value. Right. And as soon as we stop believing in it, it declines. You know, as soon as we don't really care about someone, they're not really famous anymore. It's kind of brutal, I think. The other thing that interested me is the ways in which... Our childhood trauma is the source of so much of why we do what we do. Yes, I find that totally fascinating. And the idea that, you know, childhood, we treat it as though it's separate from adulthood. The children that we were are completely different people from the adults who we are now, you know, when actually maybe it's more of a continuum. Yeah. And actually, in the last episode when we interviewed Lisa Tadeo, she also, in her book Three Women, opened up her characters by speaking about their childhood And in this book, Taffy does the same. And I even think about, like, in her feature, she sort of does the same in trying to understand exactly why these celebrities are the way they are based on what's happened to them recently and and, and how they grew up. Like, it's all of that is about empathy, right? Like, all about that is about understanding what little thing triggered 
us to be who we are now. Yes, exactly. And I loved that point in the interview where she described her book as an experiment in empathy. Mm. Like that that idea, that kind of point of view, which is quite a filmic idea, really. And it's interesting that she writes screenplays and that's where her training was because the idea of point of view and the link to empathy is kind of so strong. But until I heard the interview, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. Right. I mean, Gia Tolentino, who is coming on the podcast, she writes about the experience of growing up with Filipino parents who came to the States. She was born in the U.S., And she writes about growing up in a kind of quite white community in Texas and, you know, kind of realizing that all the books she was reading and the games she was playing, um, that actually those things are kind of coded white and she's not white. And there's a kind of there's an interesting point, I think, where she talks about childhood and the point where she realizes that. And she has this amazing essay about sort of literary heroines and her identification and, you know, all the kind of issues of representation and stuff that she thinks about now and how those started when she was a child. Yeah, it feels like a lot of the literature and culture that's been coming out recently is very psychologically aware. Like, this Mm. is a new generation of writers and producers who've maybe been in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) They seem quite conscious of things that psychology professors have been telling us for decades. That's it for this week. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Continue the conversation with us on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call, or you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners can find the show. We'll both be back in two weeks' time with the poet, musician, genius and multi-award winning podcaster George the Poet. And a massive thank you to everyone at the FT who has helped us launch Culture Call. That's Anna Metcalf, Shannon Gibson, Kay Ishimaru, Renee Kaplan, Amy Keane and everyone else. Thank you. We have been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by David Waters with production assistance from Eileen Rodriguez and our music is composed by Fatum. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. It was so funny I died. Okay. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.